Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 11 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we unpacked the unwavering magic of the Coupe de France. We ran the rule over Radu Dragazan ahead of the Romanian defender's proposed move from Genoa to Tottenham. And we dissected Real Sociedad's winter wobble. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive overview of what we discussed and when. This episode is of course produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. It's always a joy to have all three of us on the call at the same time when we're recording the podcast. A bit of a, a rare event these days. We all lead busy lives, but delighted to say that Michael Jones and Rudy Barlow join me at the same time this evening to discuss the the latest goings on in Europe. Michael Jones, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good, thank you. It is a real treat, isn't it? It feels like these occasions have been increasingly rare recently. But no, yeah, I'm doing good. I think just getting back into the swing of a full working week is taking its toll on a Tuesday, which is obviously healthy. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks, Michael. There's been a, a cold snap of sorts up in Scotland, uh, but we're just about just about managing to get through it. Uh, Rudy Barlow, how has the the Madrid winter been treating you? Are you back in Madrid yet or are you still in Edinburgh? Yep, made myself made my way back to Madrid last week, and I'm back with my my favourite hounds in the stair, who have uh, given me a, a loud and raucous greeting, as as you can imagine. But uh, but yeah, all good, nice to be back, and at least to be fair, it is cold here, but the sun does shine, and it, it warms you up a little bit. Absolutely, Barlow, you can always enjoy some tapas. Should you ever feel a little bit cold, yeah, no, glad to hear that that you're settling back in in Madrid. Let's get stuck right into the latest goings on across Europe. I think probably the best place for us to start might actually be in France. Yep, definitely. The Coupe de France's keenly anticipated round of 64 took centre stage across the first weekend in January. While the FA Cup's ongoing appeal has been called into question recently, the Coupe de France is still widely regarded as one of the most romantic domestic cups in world football. With an elusive charm, a melting pot of over 7,000 teams and away days that would make Exeter against Hartlepool look like a local derby, it's not hard to see why so many people are taken in by the allure of this quite brilliant competition. Tell us more about the unwavering magic of the Coupe de France, Sally. Yeah, Bow, it really is just such a wonderful and vast competition. Now, there is evidently a lot to unpack here, a lot to digest, but in terms of a roadmap for this section, if you like, I plan to start by explaining the format of the Cup and some of the factors that have facilitated, I suppose, even enabled the magic of the Coupe de France. 
We'll then spotlight three of the most memorable upsets and storylines the Cup has provided over the years before finally putting this year's edition of the Coupe de France under the road to nowhere microscope. So yeah, looking at the format, the first point to note is that a staggering 7,355 teams entered the Coupe de France this season. So for context, that's more than 10 times greater than the 732 teams that entered the FA Cup this season. So clubs from French overseas departments and regions also compete in the Coupe de France. And for example, you see teams from Réunion in the Indian Ocean. You've got teams from Martinique and Guadeloupe in the Caribbean Sea and teams from Tahiti in the Pacific Ocean, all of which adds another layer of charm and drama, as opposed to the Cup. You also see teams from the likes of French Polynesia, Mayotte and New Caledonia competing. So a lot of football clearly, therefore, has to take place before we get to the stage we were at last weekend with just 64 teams remaining. So what we have, Barlow, starting all the way back in August, are several preliminary regional phases. You have 16 or so areas, and if you're like me, those early rounds are a goldmine for Google Maps ideas. Yeah, I spent I spent longer than I care to admit browsing the fixture list for the preliminary stages and looking up teams and their grounds on Google Maps. Uh, anyone who knows me will know that I'm quite quite sad when it comes to Google Maps. But anyway, I've, I've digressed slightly. The, the preliminary stages really help to, to whittle the numbers right down and bring the potential fairy tales into sharp focus. Third tier teams are then in the draw as early as October. So that includes the likes of Dijon and Social. League 2 outfits such as Bordeaux and Saint-Étienne then join the competition in mid-November and the top fight clubs then enter at the round of 64 stage, which we've just seen at the start of January. Just as an aside, Barlow, I think one of the coldest games of football I've probably ever been to was a round of 64 Coupe de France tie between Strasbourg and Epinal back in January 2017. I think it took me two or three days to fully thaw out after that. My dad was actually at that game as well and he, he still still reminds me about just how cold a game of football that was absolutely freezing and yet not, not even two weeks later we were in uh, Freiburg for Freiburg against Bayern Munich and that was probably even colder but yes uh, again I've, I've digressed like that. I probably should, should stop digressing as much uh, on the podcast but anyway thinking now about the cup again and, and why it produces so many shocks I think what you have with the Coupe de France, with its format, even with the French football ecosystem, which I'll come on to shortly, I think what you have with all of that is the perfect recipe for upsets and for smaller teams to progress really quite far in the competition. So firstly, when there are two or more divisions between two clubs drawn together, the lower-ranked team almost always gets to play at home, which can serve and indeed has served as a, a real leveller of sorts. Secondly, you also have clubs from the second and third tiers entering the fray fairly early on, and those clubs are quite often drawn against each other, which can play a, a role in opening up doors for smaller clubs to progress to the latter stages of the competition, almost under the radar. And I think the perfect illustration of this came back in 2019 when fourth-tier AS Vitre made it all the way to the quarterfinals, having only faced one League decide and um, without having to play a single opponent from League N. And then the third factor, and perhaps the most pertinent factor, the difference in quality between professional and amateur clubs in France is relatively small. And this can 
largely be attributed to the way in which French football is structured. So only the top two tiers in French football are fully professional, which means a significant number of really top-class graduates from France's many esteemed youth academies invariably end up playing for the amateur side scattered across the country. So all of those factors help to foster a really unpredictable cup competition, paving the way for shocks and, yeah, dramatic storylines. Turning our attention now to some of those dramatic storylines, I'm quite keen to talk about Les Herbiers and their fairy tale run back in 2018. Now, Les Herbiers are from the Vendée in Western France. You may or may not have holidayed in the Vendée back in the day, I think. We went on a few family holidays there back in the day. Anyway, quite remarkably, Les Herbiers started the competition by playing in front of just 200 fans. They were playing in the third tier of French football that season and were actually relegated at the end of the campaign. But despite their troubles in the league, they made it past nine opponents all the way to the Coupe de France final where they faced PSG in front of 70,000 fans, ultimately losing 2-0. But given, yeah, a really good account of themselves. The commune of Les Herbiers has a population of about 16,000 people and for the final, the club managed to sell 15,000 tickets. So yeah, basically the whole the whole commune upping sticks and going to Paris for, for, for that game. Yeah, fantastic story. Fantastic sporting story. I spoke earlier about the role the youth academies have played in enabling the Coupe de France to produce so many magic moments. The Les Herbiers side that reached the final was laced with players who had come through elite youth academy. So the defensive midfielder, Valentin Van Balligan, not quite sure if I've got the pronunciation spot on there, but I've given it a good go. He graduated from Wales Youth Academy while Sebastian Flochon was in and around the B team at Lyon and Amboise Gaboho spent some of his early career at Rennes. Now, coincidentally, Sebastian Flochon was and still is good friends with a certain Samuel Amtiti. So there you go, a nice little anecdote for you. If we cast our minds back further to the turn of the century, we find an arguably even more impressive story in the form of Cali's historic run to the 1999-2000 final. Cali were an amateur team playing in the fourth tier of French football with an average home attendance in the league of about 300 or so fans. The team was comprised of shopkeepers, teachers, labourers. Defender Jocelyn Merlin and winger Mikhail Gerard sold alcohol to English day trippers in a local cash and carry. Midfielder Gregory Lefebvre was a camp attendant. Stéphane Canu was a gardener and star player Emmanuel Vasseur was an electrician on trains in the Channel Tunnel there. Manager Radisraz Lozano had fled Spain with his family as a child to escape the Franco regime and he was a council foreman responsible for tending to the area's sporting facilities. So some fantastic stories there. There's a great article actually by Phil Fox on the BBC Sport website which talks about those figures and explores Cali's historic cup run in quite extensive detail looking at how it was made possible on and off the pitch and yeah the significance of the cup run for the wider community. The northern port town of Cali was then and still to this day remains one of the most economically challenged in France. So at the turn of the century, unemployment wasn't nearly 17%, with almost half of the area's 75,000 inhabitants earning less than £5,000 a year. So yeah, quite quite an interesting piece that from Phil Docks on the BBC Sport website. If you are looking for some further reading, do go and check that out. 
on their way to the final, Cali beat a staggering 10 teams, including Lille, Strasbourg and the reigning Ligue 1 champions at the time, Bordeaux. And in the final, actually, against Nantes, they took the lead in the 34th minute through Jérôme Dutitre. And for half an hour or so, it looked for all the world like what was already one of the greatest stories in sporting history would get the most perfect ending. However, Cali Hearts would be broken by two goals from future Man City, Newcastle and Wigan midfielder Antoine Subierski, the second of which came in the devastating form of a rather controversially awarded 90th minute penalty. The club was actually quite sadly liquidated in 2017, but they had more than written their name into the history books with their cup exploits at the turn of the century. Quite fittingly, their cup run was also voted as the best of all time by France football magazine readers a few years ago. Elsewhere, I did enjoy G.S. Saint-Pierroise's run in the 2019-2020 edition of the Coupe de France. There, an amateur side from Réunion, which, for those who aren't already aware, is an island in the Indian Ocean, just off Madagascar. I actually watched Madagascar on uh, ITV a few days ago, just another, well, probably useless anecdote. Uh, but anyway, in the, the round of 64, GS San Pierre travelled more than 9,000 kilometres to face League 2 team Niort, and against all odds, they won... 2-1 and in the process became the first club from an overseas territory to reach the last 32 of the Coupe de France in 31 years. So they would go on to lose their round of 32 tie against Epinal, second mention in this section for Epinal. They would lose that game in extra time. I think it was the the 118th minute actually that Epinal scored, so quite heartbreaking. But but by that point, the, the enchanting headlines had already been well written. Before we wrap up this section of the podcast, I do just want to look briefly at this season's Coupe de France, which has also delivered some brilliant stories. You may or may not have seen the quite brilliant footage of sixth-tier US Revelle watching the draw for the round of 64 and finding out they would be facing PSG. They were, at the time, ecstatic. They would go on to lose that tie 9-0, which was uh, yeah really quite ruthless from, from PSG. But I think, again... It just shows the magic, uh, you know, the, these players from the sixth tier, these amateur players getting the chance to play the likes of, of Kylian Mbappe. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. You also had Thionville in the fifth tier volunteering to travel across the world to face New Caledonian side He Engine Sport in November, clocking up more than 33,000 kilometres there and back and winning 4-0. So yeah, definitely trip of a lifetime stuff for some of those players. Elsewhere, you might have seen Golden Line... FC travelling almost 7,000 kilometres from Martinique to the northeast of France to take on Lille, who of course won Ligue 1 back in 2021. Lille won 12-0, which did admittedly put a dampener of sorts uh, on the story, but it was still great to follow Golden Line's journey. Um, my dad kept saying that Golden Line sounded like a, a British pub, uh, which probably there must be several Golden Lines dotted across the UK, but but yeah, great story, and for those players, trip of a lifetime stuff. He also had third-tier Sochaux, who have really not had their problems to seek in recent times. It was it was really quite lovely to see them produce one of the more high-profile shocks in this season's round of 64, beating top-flight Lyon 2-1 in that encounter. Looking ahead to the round of 32, you have 15 Ligue 1 sides, 6 Ligue 2 sides, 4 sides from the third tier, 6 sides from the fourth tier, 
and one side from the fifth tier. Uh, and if my memory is serving me correctly, the fifth tier side actually drew a fourth tier side. So a, a real spread of teams and absolutely the potential for more Coupe de France magic as the tournament develops. I think we'll draw our whirlwind tour of the Coupe de France, its format, its many great stories. I think we'll draw all of that to a close now. I think we'll take a brief break and we'll speak to Michael Jones in a brief moment to hear all about the latest goings on in Italy, where there's been a quite significant development off the field of play. We'll be right back. On the European front, Italian football has experienced something of a resurgence in recent years. That progress has been achieved in spite of well-documented financial problems which have marred individual clubs such as Internazionale and Juventus. However, fears that the positive momentum in Serie A could fizzle out have become much more concrete over the past month or so due to the discreto Crescita, which translates to the growth decree. Michael, tell us more about the growth decree and the serious ramifications its abolition could have for Italian football. Yeah, it's a really worrying time for Italian football. The growth decree itself offered Italian clubs a tax break now in order to give them a competitive advantage not just in terms of the income tax for players when they were signing so that they you know, would be able to take home more, but also for staff and for other footballing personnel. Now, it was originally planned that this, well, it's all happened over the past month or so, but the original plan for the abolition of the growth decree was for it to go by the end of February. However, it was pushed forwards till the end of 2023 so it was in effect from new year's day and suddenly the picture the transfer picture for many of the big sides in particular in italy looks a lot different it was i think it's important to give it a bit of context as to how long it's been in place and the impacts that it's had on italian football in order to fully understand the extent the abolition of it could and may have so it was introduced midway through 2019 and since then you may recall not that far before we actually started doing this podcast so any big signing we've had during the road to nowhere football italian coverage that's probably been a key factor of but some of those names that might help you relate victor Asimian arrived for huge money from Lille to Napoli. Romelo Lukaku um, has arrived in Italy twice during this period, both at Inter Milan and at Roma. Marcus Turam arrived as a free agent on hefty wages, beating off a lot of other potential suitors this summer. Andrea Nana also arrived as a free agent at Inter Milan. Jan Summer is another example. And then you've got English examples, the likes of Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Fikeo Tamori, and Tammy Abraham. And... At the time it was introduced, it was introduced from the Italian, well, it was pushed for by the Italian Footballers Association, which was largely due to the stewardship it was under at the time, which was Damiano Tomazzi, a player 
people may remember from his playing days in the noughties and nineties. He was a prominent player both for Roma when they won the Scudetto and also for Italy. He wasn't part of the squad that won the World Cup in 2006, but he was part of the one that got to the final at Euro 2000. He's now the mayor of Verona and is a member of the centre-left coalition, which has been a prominent force of Italian politics since the time we were all born, basically in the mid-1990s. And I think what I would also say is the centre-left coalition in itself, a name that can be quite deceiving because it contains factions of political groups from all across the political spectrum. However, about a year or just over a year after the decree had come into place, the tax break had come into place, we saw the appointment of Umberto Calciano as Tomasi's successor. Calciano is a man who isn't as left-leaning as Tomasi, I think it's safe to say. He's quite an outspoken person. He didn't have the same playing career either, although he did win a winner's medal when Sampdoria um, won the league in the early 1990s, I think 91, I think he played two games, but other than that, his career was mainly across the lower leagues in Italian football. And he's been sort of very pro-Italian and very vocally pro-Italian during his tenure. He was very outspoken over the summer of Juventus' treatment of Leonardo Bonucci before he joined Union Berlin. And he's been really pushing for the abolition of the growth decree. Now, in a statement that was put on by the association on Twitter, he described the notion not as an Italian first priority, as in not to try and confuse it with sort of a kind of far-right nationalist approach, but that they had to start promoting youth players more across the country. They had to restore the league. They had to restore the national team and Serie A's status all across Europe. But like you mentioned in the question there, Ali, you know, during this period from mid-2019, they've actually done that quite well. They won, Italy won Euro 2020, which arguably can be a bit of a stretch to associate it with the growth decree itself because it was only a year and a half after and many of these players had been a part of the team beforehand. And of course, the national team also failed to qualify for the 2022 World Cup. But what can be much more fairly attributed to the impact the growth decree has had is the continental relative success Italian teams have had in Europe over the past few years, especially in the last 12 to 18 months, where you've had Roma, who have been massive beneficiaries of this. We've seen the big signings. Lukaku was the one I mentioned before. I mentioned Abraham as well, but looked at the core of their team that was there when they won the Europa Conference League back in 2022, Nemanja Matic, Chris Smalling, Jorginho Wijnaldum was, I think he arrived afterwards off the top of my memory. But these were all players that were there when they didn't just have the Conference League success, but they also reached the league of the Europa League final last season. The Conference League itself is important because it shows it wasn't just the big, biggest teams that really benefited from it as well. Fiorentina, who have been able to sign the likes of Jonathan Icone from France and Nico Gonzalez from Germany in recent years, two players who were there when they reached the Conference League final versus West Ham last season. And we mentioned some of those Inter Milan personnel. Inter Milan, of course, reached the Champions League final 
last season, which was perceived and viewed as a massive success. And the sort of comeback of Calcio in Italy. And there was real optimism for this season. We've seen already so far this season, the likes of Rafa Leal's contract be extended by a number of years, something that wouldn't have been possible um, probably without the growth of the Cree actually coming into place. And I think for sort of relative terms, if a player, for example, the cost it has to a club as well, clubs can be spending, it's expected that Napoli, Juventus, Roma, Milan and Inter Milan will all be losing over 10 million euros per year. And it's not just that. The benefit to the entire league was estimated to be around 150 million euros and 198 of the league's 653 players, which is 30% of a whole, were expected to benefit from it. And there's there's obvious aspects when you lose your big players and they and the argument being from Calcagno is that it's going to come in and it's going to by removing it even that it's going to bolster Italian youth players and the Italian game, even though the under twenties as well reached the under 20 world cup final back in the summer. But I think it's really important to stress that football nowadays and football tourism and tourism in Italy is hugely based on big names. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo was a part of Serie A during this time for two years Romelo Lukaku is a big name Victor Simeon is one of the sort of hottest striking names you know pro- property wise and Cavara Skelly and Rafael are two players that have lit up Serie A both signed again during this tenure and when you combine that with other factors the fact that you can't have betting partnerships in Italy that rightly or wrongly it, whether you agree or whatever your stance is on betting within sport, I don't particularly have a very pleasant one of it, but you can't deny the financial benefits that it does bring to teams. And when you combine that with the TV rights issues that have been an ongoing issue in Italy and the economic uncertainty in the country, there was a governmental crisis back in 2022, which led to the election of the far-right coalition that year as well. And then stadiums themselves have got a 30 on average they're 30 years older than those in the leagues that they're supposed to be competing against in germany in spain in england at least i think in england it's 38 years or something like that might be germany but they're both kind of similar but yeah the ramifications could be absolutely huge what we will see is the likelihood is is that um umberto calciano the president of what is known as the AIC, they will probably get their wish in many ways. And it won't just be them. It will be also the presidents of clubs that have tried to promote more within. And there have been successful case studies of that in recent years. I think we look at Empoli and Sassuolo in particular, those two sporting directors have been very in favor of this move, but it looks like more teams are going to have to start adopting that model. And it does beg the question, just does this kind of situation or system only work if you've had a long-running successful academy program? Whilst there's signs that Italy's youth development is on the up, whether it's at a stage where they can reliably 
count on it to make up for the lack of big stars that they'll be able to attract because of the more tax that you know or the the competitive advantage that they're losing i think is really concerning and i think that would be a huge and unfair ask on a lot of young players and it just makes you wonder whether it just means there could be a bit of an introduction of much more sort of average overseas players into italian football to make up for those types of players so yeah really concerning time i mean the one thing that we don't know just yet is, and what I should probably clarify, is that players on existing contracts will not be affected. It's very much designed at new signings. But the one aspect that isn't super clear as of yet is how it will impact players and managers whose terms will be expiring. And naturally, the likes of Jose Mourinho, for example, if Roma wanted to offer him improved terms, what the situation would be, whether they'd still be able to benefit from the same tax benefits but I'm not sure that will be the case so yeah hugely concerning times for Serie A what a lovely way to start the year but it's going to be really interesting to see how long the AIC and the Italian government can stand firm if they sort of see firsthand because this does look like the kind of policy firsthand that you could see very direct consequences Interesting stuff, Michael, and yeah, certainly one that looks like it will have major repercussions. Elsewhere, Genoa could be on the verge of losing a star asset. The club's impressive run to Serie A has been largely down to the monstrous defensive performances of Radu Dragushin, strongly linked with Napoli and Tottenham Hotspur, although Bayern have just made a move too now. The Romanian centre-back has been key to El Rosso Blues' recent four-game unbeaten run. What's made him stand out? And who else can be praised for Genoa's seamless transition back into the top flight, Michael? He certainly gets a lot of the credit, that's for sure. And I think you could have gone on, I think what we normally stick to about a 15 to 20 minute section on each league. And I think you could have easily gone on for a third of that name in the clubs that he's been linked with. When I was doing my research on him, there was countless number of teams that have been linked but yeah certainly the most strongly linked have been Bayern Munich, Napoli, um, Tottenham Hotspur that one looks to be advancing a bit but I think it's not the right place or podcast to be speculating on that I think if anybody wants an update and there's not an update by the time this is released I'm sure Fabrizio Romano or somebody similar can help you in that case but in terms of what we do well as a podcast, we can talk about these young players. He's just a 21-year-old, like you said, a Romanian centre-back, and he has been absolutely immense to Genoa. And you would assume by having a 21-year-old who's really standing out in Italian football that he's kind of taking this quick route to stardom, and it looks like he might start to do that from this point on in his career. But I don't think that's necessarily been the case it was Juventus who signed him I think at the age of 16 and although he was able to break through under Andrea Pirlo who I think one of the few good things that he did really do during his season at the club was promote young talent and Dragas had made four appearances but then he had loans out to Sampdoria to Salernitana neither of those really worked out too well and it was when he went to Genoa and he was a big part of them in Serie B where he seemed to really find his feet before really excelling this season he scored an important goal recently in a game versus Napoli but yeah he's played every minute so far this season and he's been 
him and only Martin Frendrup, a 22-year-old Danish midfielder. And he's also got an assist, but he's also in the top 10 percentile for headers or headers won and for clearances as well. So if you look at his off-the-ball metrics, they're very positive on the ball, although his passing could do with a bit of work and you expect that'll be one of the first tasks of whoever signs him. But the fact that he's been linked with a team like Tottenham and under a manager like Andrew Postacoglu, who loves a sort of ball-playing adventure centre-back, would say a lot. And I think from that kind of Tottenham perspective, where they love players to be attacking and take players on, that is one of the things he really possesses really well. He's got this real drive and powerful ability within him to just sort of not bruise past players, but barges way past players but he's he is able to you know beat his man quite easily and it might not always look the most graceful but he is certainly a super talented player and what's been quite exciting is Genoa I'm sure many people know are owned by the same owners that are about to sort of get full control over Everton the 777 partners now they've had a very mixed reputation for their ownership across across club football Ali I'm sure you can tell me firsthand over there management if you can call it that of her to berlin but they've had vasco da gama in brazil they've had red star in france dana liege in belgium all to very varying degrees of success and in fairness to them and the genoa project there has been much more of a unity found so far this season and last season it should be said when they got promoted under manager former legend alberto Giladino who got the, they got promoted, yeah, finishing second in the second tier. And they currently sit 12th. They're on an unbeaten run that's seen draws against Bologna and Juventus. And that's not just been down to Dragosan. That's been down to some other really good, relatively young players. Albert Gunmundsen scored eight goals in 17 games this season. The Icelandic 26-year-old, who never plays, had a bit of a later breakthrough. But you can also look at the impact made by a young Italy forward, Matteo Rategui a player who has actually been a beneficiary of the growth decree as well in terms of them being able to sign him from Argentina last summer over Premier League rivals. And yeah, I think their sort of recruitment and scouting is going to be really put under the test under the abolition of the growth decree. They've relied heavily on young, talented foreign players and been able to offer relatively favourable terms on the prospect that they've been able to sell them on in the future, like what you'd expect with Dragosan. And that model could be coming under a lot of pressure very soon. So I think Genoa, as well as they've been doing, and I think under Giladina, they've been making steady progress and they've got goals, they've got a solid defence. The departure of key players is going to prove a real test for them going forwards, but not just for them. And I think that's the one thing they'll take solace out of is that other teams around them will also be impacted but for a team that relies so heavily on foreign investment, your investment in young players as well, it's something that could really be put to the test. Yeah, really interesting stuff, Michael. Interesting to hear about. Yeah, I suppose just the impact that the abolition of the of the growth decree, what that impact is going to be on Italian football. Um, interesting to hear. I suppose some of the reasons perhaps behind its abolition. So yeah. Definitely one to monitor. Okay, we are going to take a quick break now. Rudy Barlow is going to get ready to tell us all about the latest goings on in Spain, including a slightly 
underwhelming round of football in the Copa del Rey. We'll be right back. In Spain, the first weekend of 2024 was a Copa del Rey weekend. The main takeaway, however, was the lack of shocks and upsets. A change in format in recent years has widely been applauded and it does bring a certain charm, but there is an aspect of the new format which prioritises business and, yeah, it all felt a little too business-like this time around, Barlow. Yeah, it did. I mean, I, I wrote this question and I was kind of planning to do my section on it. Uh, before Unionistas de Salamanca did put out Villarreal on penalties and that was was quite a shock and quite impressive. It was a really good atmosphere. It has to be said that was everything you want in terms of magic of the cup. The game was postponed on the Sunday night. It was 1-1 after 90 minutes and they were due to start extra time and there was a floodlight failure and they decided that the game could not be played. So they played it again the next day. They played extra time the next day. Ended 1-1, penalties, um, and Kiko Femenia, ex Watford fullback, blazed over to send them into delirium. It was it was pretty, pretty impressive. Um pretty good to see, but it was really the only shock. And if you look at the round of 16 now we're going into, so before the round before the quarterfinals, there's 14 teams from Primera, there's 14 La Liga sides in there, there's Tenerife. You beat Las Palmas in the kind of Canary Islands derby, and that was to a degree an upset. I mean, Las Palmas are playing well, but it's a derby between a side that was just promoted. It's not kind of out of the question. And then Unionistas are the only side outside of those top two divisions that um have made it into this round. And you look at the four teams from La Liga that aren't in it, or five with uh, Las Palmas, um, Almeria, Cadiz, Las Palmas, Granada, who were tipped out due to um, an ineligible player. Those are kind of the three of the bottom four are in that. It really is kind of the top kind of sides in La Liga, right down to the middle of the middle table, mid-table, are all through to these kind of latter stages. And it's a Copa setup that changed a few years ago. So essentially what happens now is that the lower division teams are seeded against the biggest teams. So the Supercopa teams, the, the top four essentially, so you've got Atleti, Real, Barca, most uh, most years plus one extra who gets into the Copa del Rey final generally. It's the top two in La Liga and the finalists. They get exempt from the first kind of two rounds of the, of the cup against kind of the lower league sides. And then it is the lower league sides seeded against kind of the top top teams in, in Spain and Unionistas have got Barcelona in this round as well. So they, they've beaten Villarreal and they don't have it have it easy either with Barcelona coming to town. But it's a format that it kind of works for everyone in certain senses, but it also does mean that you, you're going to miss out on those kind of real shocks in terms of, I mean, you were talking about the French, the Coupe de France earlier and kind of some of the lower league sides that have gone really far or even kind of Ligue 2 or, or third league teams that have gone really, really far in, in the Coupe de France. And it's it's really hard for these teams to get that far in. And and so, yeah, those those teams are seeded against the big teams. So they get their kind of fairy tale shot. They get a chance to take out Atleti, Barca, Real, Real Sociedad. They get these big teams come to town and they get a chance to kind of upset them at home. You, it's one-legged compared to what it used to be, which was two legs, which is, yeah, you have larger chance of an upset there. 
you get kind of a good gate because you're obviously going to fill your stadium for these games. It's quite entertaining to see some of these world stars going up against kind of these cabbage patch pitches and uh, and yeah, some of the lower league teams and, and not really necessarily blowing them out either. I mean, Real Madrid only beat Arandina 3-1. Uh, Barcelona were kind of in it right to the end against uh, against Barbastro. They won three two in the in the end. But yeah, tight games. And Atleti have gone out to Cornea in recent years. There's been a lot of kind of uh, kind of sides that have not been successful. But but yeah, the way it's set up means that the big teams essentially have an easier path to the final. So it suits them. They can get to the latter stages. And once uh, that that the top three, especially once they're in the kind of quarterfinals, then they can really start thinking about winning it without necessarily having to having to consider the earlier stages against like kind of big teams. They don't want to get drawn against each other essentially. And um, those smaller teams, as we we're saying, they get the fairy tale. They get a little bit of money for it. It kind of suits them. And then the middling sides as well, they'll they'll get an easier draw until it gets to the latter stages when you can kind of perhaps get a shock. We do have a Madrid derby in the round of 16. The draw has worked out very favourably for us and it's, it's going to be entertaining um, in that sense. But but yeah, you look at the likes of kind of Mirandez who got to the semi-finals for a, on a couple of occasions in the last decade or so. Alaves got to a final recently enough. Rio were in a semi-final just two, three years ago. And those stories, for the neutral to kind of engage the neutral in these games, it's it's harder to get those stories. And the likes of kind of a, a smaller team winning the Copa del Rey, in theory, are very very slim. And I I was kind of looking at it. I was looking at back at this and saying, right, okay, in terms of actual winners and in terms of teams getting to the final, there has actually been quite a widespread. But it is all that kind of upper elite. Team, so I mean, Real Madrid, Boston, Atleti have all won it in the last fifteen years. You've also got Betis, Real Sociedad, and Valencia all have won it in the last five years too. And if you if you go back a little bit further, Sevilla have also uh, won the Copa del Rey. I think it was in two thousand eight or two thousand nine. Must have been two thousand eight, um, as well. So you do have a spread of teams winning this, but it's not necessarily as open as you'd like it to be. And and yeah, the Copa del Rey in general. I think it's a it's a format that does just feel a little bit too easy for everyone. It, it feels kind of, it rubs you up the wrong way a little bit as a neutral, I think. I mean, most people want to see kind of the the randomness of the cup and that is what is good about cup competitions. Something that's been removed from the Champions League now um, is that kind of randomness and the idea that anybody can be drawn against anyone. Luck of the draw, you could go really, really far just depending on how things play out that's been kind of removed from it and that is probably some of the magic and it's it's just a little bit too business like a little bit too much of a transaction for me they're they are selling fairy tales with Unionistas against Barcelona but also yeah I mean also on the other hand as I think it was the TSFP we're mentioning this too those smaller teams never get to go to the Metropolitano or the Bernabeu they never get to play at those big stadiums because they're always seated at home against the bigger sides so so yeah, right up until kind of the quarterfinals, semifinals, you never really in, entered into kind of the business stage of the competition. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it is what it is. It's just it feels a little bit lacking, and especially when you get around like this where there were no shocks at all, really. Yeah, that is rather underwhelming, Barlow. Well, we spoke positively of Athletic Club last time out, and neighbours Real Sociedad have also come in for. 
plenty of praise this season. Now, they're still well on track for some form of European football next season, but there is a good chance the end January on the outside looking in on the Champions League race. Heading into the Basque Derby this weekend, Real Sociedad's Champions League form has not been mirrored domestically. Tell us more, Barlow. Yeah, it's it's a funny one because I'd say Real Sociedad are actually a better team than they were last season, but much more inconsistent. They've got a higher ceiling, I think, but probably a lower baseline. I mean, what Imanol Aguathil has done much more successfully, I might add, is kind of what Xavi tried to do at Barcelona, is kind of open up the side, play a little bit more expansively, uh, capitalise on the talents they have, capitalise on the fact that Dake Kubo has been in outstanding form and, and brilliant uh, yeah, he's been brilliant this season. The fact that they have a few more attacking options, they've got Umar Sadiq back, although he's off to AFCON now, as is Kubo. And and yeah, their form in the Champions League has been really different to their form in La Liga. I mean, in the Champions League, they've not they've barely conceded. I think they conceded, what, two goals in the entirety of the group stage. I think that was the best in the Champions League overall. Um, but in La Liga, they've not quite had that same focus and neither have they been able to create chances in the same way and that that I think comes partly as part of the Champions League with you have those teams you're playing against big teams teams that are used to dominating or at least being more ambitious in their leagues so there's a little bit more space to work with generally even if you come up with a team that is playing kind of a lower defensive line the likes of Benfica aren't used to defending as much as they have done against Real Sociedad same could be said for Salzburg and, and even Inter too so they have been absolutely outstanding in the Champions League, but Robin Lenormand, who's been who's now kind of first choice for Spain, he's not been at quite the same level as I think he was last season. He's been more inconsistent. He's making more mistakes. Part of that is the fact that they're being asked to play slightly higher up the park, and so you expose your defence a little bit more. But him and Zubeldia haven't been the kind of sure partnership that they were sure partnership that they were last season, and. One of the areas that we praised them for that I've been I was impressed with is they went out and got Kieran Tierney, they got Amari Trore in, Traore in, and strengthened those fullback positions, the two positions which I felt they were weakest in last season. But yeah, again, looking to kind of capitalize on the talent that they have playing a bit more expansively, they've still left their defensive line a little bit more exposed. And I think as much as the defense has not been as solid as it was last season, if not been as consistent. It's also been a problem kind of going forward. I mean, you look at Sadiq, who's been in and out of the team, but he's got two goals this season. Um, you look at the really kind of good run they had, and especially in the Champions League, they had Bryce Mendes scoring goals. They had Mikel Oriathaba, who hit a run and kind of left behind his ACL injury. He looked back to his best and the player that we sort of saw in the Euros for Spain. But Bryce Mendes, no goals since the 24th of October. Oriathaba has not scored since the 11th of uh, October, I think it was, or maybe November, I think that's November, and I've just written it down wrong. But uh, but yeah, you see these these kind of players that they need to be putting away the, the chances that they have, and it's led them to a situation now where they're really quite far down the pecking order to repeat in the Champions League in La Liga, um, that has to be said, and part of it is Girona. But, uh, but yeah, they're seven points off, seven points worse off than they were last season, conceded not too many more goals and not scored too many more goals. 
but the way they've scored those goals in the games has been vastly different. Athletic Club are a few points ahead of them. Atleti are obviously ahead of them as well. And it, it looks kind of almost, it feels unfair that they should be so far behind in the Champions League race, but it looks like they're going to really struggle to get back into the top four this season. Um, and so, so yeah, and even, as I was saying, kind of with that higher baseline, you look at Real Madrid, Barca and Atleti, those three games in the first round, they lost all three of them, despite probably outplaying their opponents for vast parts of those games. Um, and so, so yeah, I think Aguasil's got almost a better football team, but a less effective one. And uh, yes, a, a slightly less... Um, extreme version of what Barcelona have which is uh yeah really taking it to the extremes but but yeah I feel I feel bad for Real Sociedad who haven't done too much wrong but probably gonna have a worse season than they did last year depending on how they get on in Champions League of course yeah let's let's see how they fare and yeah let's uh let's see how they get on in the round of 16 I'll be yeah quietly backing them to advance to the quarterfinals okay thank you very much Barlow brilliant as always to hear you talk about all things Spanish football interesting to hear I suppose the, the contrast between the magic of the Coupe de France which we looked at in the first part of the podcast and then the, the sort of underwhelming almost business like nature of of the Copa del Rey yeah really really interesting to hear that in particular Come in just quickly again and sort of, uh, yeah, <laughs> add into a bit to that section. Yeah, sure. Um, Weirdly, I kind of looked at it because I was just like, right, okay, how does Spain kind of compare? Coupe de France has the widest variety of winners, as does the DFB Pokal over the last 15 years. And you'd expect those two leagues being the kind of most one-sided in terms of PSG mm. and Bayern to be the least uh, widespread. But it's those two teams... Uh, those two leagues, sorry, that are uh, countries that produce the most wide range of winners. The FA Cup and Coppa Italia have produced the least amount of winners over those fifteen years. And I will shut up now. Thank you, Ali. No, that was that was a perfect little little anecdote. Yeah, really enjoyed hearing that, Barlow. And yeah, I think it, it almost reinforces what we've been saying across the the first and third sections of the podcast. So yeah, thank you very much. For that, I'll say thank you to Michael Jones as well. He has had to head off. He's playing fives this evening. Just hope that his knees hold up. Uh, we did we did say to him uh, that we would, we would wish him well, what with his history of injuries. So I'll say thank you to Michael Jones as well. And I'll say, most importantly, thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>